Okay, I'm glad you're here. Thank you. I want to um, talk about Hanukkah today, and I want to talk about the Parsha, and I want to talk about life and, and, <laughs> and everything else. Um, so, so, let me just start. Um, you know, Hanukkah is, uh, was, was instituted, uh, historically speaking, in terms, of the, in terms of the history of the Jewish people, kind of, kind of late. I mean, or, 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 or sort of recently, if you will. It's, it's a very old holiday, but at the, at the same time, what I mean is relative to the, to the Chumash, to the, to the five books, the, the Torah itself, it, it happened after that happened. So, so therefore, um, therefore, Hanukkah does not appear in the five books. Um, and yet, we have a tradition that says that everything in the entire world is in the Torah. That everything is in the Torah. One of my favorite stories, I haven't mentioned it for a while, used to be that I don't think I could go uh, a week without saying it about eight times. So, so it feels like a very long time since I've said this. But, but just to get the point across, uh, Hanukkah has to appear in the Torah. Um, because everything appears in the Torah. And yet, again, it's a historical event that happened after the Torah. So, so, so we're going to look at some... Uh, just very quickly before we go deeper, just uh, some places uh, where, where you see it. But this story is, um, I was attending a, uh, a class, uh, Israelite, uh, wonderful program. Uh, it's spelled, if you, if, you, if you want to check it out, Israelite, I-S-R-A-L-I-G-H-T. Um, so you, you have to do that spelling if you want to find it online. Um, anyway, so I was attending one of the, the first class, and it's an introduction to, to uh, Judaism and so, but I, I had been doing actually a, a bunch of learning beforehand, but it's very philosophically oriented, so, so really anyone at any level can get a lot out of it. But, but anyway, this was uh, day one, the, the first introductory class. And, um, and Rabbi Aaron, the, the teacher, was sitting in front of a blackboard, and he said to the, the people there, he said, okay, what's the Torah? And someone raises their hand and says, a book of laws. And he said, very good, he writes down a book of laws. And then someone else says, a book of history. And he goes, great, a book of history. He writes down a book of history. And then I raised my hand. He says, what's the Torah? And I said, it's the infinite compressed into the finite. And he went, okay, let's hold off on that for a while. You know, so it's sort of like, that's, that's a little bit more, more than we want to cover in this very first talk on the very first day to people who have no background. Um, but anyway, the point is, is that and we're going to go further into this in terms of understanding the miracle of Hanukkah, there is this idea of the infinite being compressed down into the finite. Um, there's a term uh, called simsum, which means basically the, the compression, or, or something being compacted, or constricted. Concentrated. <clears throat> Concentrated. And, and, and you'll see how, how that's going to come to play with understanding what the light of Hanukkah is in a moment. Um, but, but we say all of reality and all of history has been compacted down into the Torah itself. So if, if that's the fact, then that events after the Torah have taken place should appear in the Torah itself. So, so where do you see Hanukkah? So I'll just mention three, three instances um, that, that I saw collected in, in one of... Uh, Rabbi uh, Avram Finkel's books, Frankel's books, rather, a uh, beautiful book called The Essence of the Holidays. Um, and uh, 
So we know that the Hanukkah appeared uh, happened on the 25th day of the month of Kislev. So the 25th day. So if you look at starting with the words Breshit, which means translated as with beginnings or in the beginning, the very beginning of the Torah, if you count the 25th word, right, because Hanukkah happened on the 25th day of Kislev, if you look at the 25th word of the Torah, starting from the beginning, it's the word Or. And Or means light. Not only that, but it's not just any mention of the word Or. It's the famous, let there be light Or. That Or is the 25th word of the Torah. So, a very remarkable uh, confluence there, where you see Hanukkah being hinted at right from the very beginning. You see, it's interesting, it's just actually... Alright, maybe we'll get a chance to discuss this more deeply, but since we're here right now, let's just mention it. You see, our tradition is that the, light, the, the Hanukkah lights are, are not just normal lights. That it's accessing, because of the time when they're being lit, you see, you see what's very striking is, is that, what's very striking is, is that we're not taking the gematria of the word Hanukkah, which would be cool to do, figure out what the gematria, the numerical equivalent of the word Hanukkah is, and then count that number from Breshis, from the beginning of the Torah, and see what words you come up with. I, I'm not prepared to do that at this moment. Um, but that would be interesting to check out. But what, what I'm suggesting, though, is, is that you're seeing something very interesting here. Because by going with the number 25, you see, if you asked me, do a gematria from, from, from the beginning of... I, I would have done the gematria of the word Hanukkah, and counted from the beginning. That's how I would have approached it. But what's so striking about this other one is that it's taking the 25th word. Now a cynic would say, ah, you're just retrofitting it. Probably the guy did Hanukkah first. <laughs> and it's like, oh, I don't know what you came up with, but this one is better. Okay, so that's, that's just cynicism. Um, and we don't even know what the, the, the gematria of the Hanukkah word is anyway. But anyway, moving forward. The point is that, that by taking the 25th, you're situating it in time. Because it's happening on the 25th of the month of Kislev. In other words, you're not just taking the concept of Hanukkah. You're taking when it actually occurred. When that light came down into the world. You're situating the miracle in time. And that's very, very, that's very important. That's very striking. I'll tell you why. Because... Kind of the, the fun factoid about Hanukkah that, that most people don't know is that, is that the holiday of Hanukkah wasn't instituted until a year after the miracle took place. When, you see, many miracles happened. Just like there were many, many prophets among the Jewish people. But their prophecies were not deemed relevant for all of history. They were prophecies that were important for, for that, that moment in history. And so they weren't canonized, so to speak. They weren't put into Tanakh. Because we didn't need them for a thousand years from them, or two thousand years from then. The ones that we have collected in Tanakh, we need for all time. But many, many prophets prophesied. There were schools of prophecies among, among the uh, prophets, among the Jewish people. 
Um, likewise, many, many miracles occurred. Many, many miracles. But they weren't considered miracles that needed to be made into holidays to be celebrated for all times. Really, only two made that, that, that status after, after the Torah was, was, uh, was finished. And that was Purim and Hanukkah. Those were deemed necessary for our survival through the long exile. So, so when the Hanukkah miracle occurred, it was you know, written down and it was duly noted and it was like, wow, this is a tremendous miracle, fantastic. But the holiday was not instituted. So the next year, when the 25th rolled around, we're still on the same subject of the 25th being or why we're doing the 25th, why we're situating this in time. When the 25th rolled around, the sages saw that there was a special energy in the air, that the light, that the essence of the light of the miracle had returned. And then they realized, oh, wait a second, this wasn't just a miracle that happened last year. This is something that's reoccurring and is important for all generations for all time. And so they instituted it. So in other words, the date that it happened, the 25th, the date that Hanukkah happened is very integral to the miracle and the essence of the holiday itself. So now when we revisit the Torah and we see that the 25th word of the Torah is or, we've got a deeper understanding because that, why are we doing the 25th of Kislev? Why are we doing 25? Because we need to situate that in time because it was only over a period of time that it was clear to the sages that this light was entering into the world on an ongoing basis. Now, I mentioned that this light is not just a normal light. This light is something called the Or Haganus. The Or Haganus is a special light that, um, that Hashem made in the beginning of creation. And He saw that it was very, very exalted. And He also saw, Hashem also saw, that it wasn't appropriate for those who weren't righteous, to be able to bask in this light. So Hashem hid this light away, and He put it in the Torah. Now listen to this. The gematria of Es Ha'or, God saw that the light, Es Ha'or, the light, Es Ha'or is gematria 613. So God put, where did God hide that light? We say this light has been hidden until the end of days. Where did God put that light? Into the 613 mitzvahs. Into the Torah itself. So we say that the Hanukkah light is this Or Haganus. Now one of the sources where you can see why it is, is because that light, the 25th of Kislev, 25 is the word Or which is referring to that original light. So there's a very strong connection showing you that the source of the Hanukkah light is the Or Haganus. Now, <clears throat> now, you say to me, well listen, I sit around the Hanukkah menorah, and this light seems like a normal light. 
Like, this light doesn't seem like, what's so aura haganuzi about it? <laughs> well, I'll tell you. <laughs> now listen to this. Let's get back to this idea of Simpson. Now, let me give you just sort of like a, a basic framework uh, for understanding Simpson in terms of the creation of the, the world. It won't take long. And then let's apply it to Hanukkah, because you'll see something very cool. Which is that, you see, the, the model, so to speak, of how Hashem created the world is, He shone a light. He made, a, he made a, uh, an empty space within Himself, so to speak. Like a womb, if you will. An empty space within Himself. That's why we say like, and then He created the world. He shone a ray of light into this empty space. And of course, the biggest joke in the entire world is that the empty space isn't empty. The empty space is also filled with godliness, right? Because this whole world is saturated with godliness. But God, so to speak, made an empty space where, where His presence wasn't going to be immediately seeable. That's the point. It wouldn't be immediately seeable. You have to search for it a little bit. Actually, you have to search for it a lot. And God shone this ray of light into this vessel, and the vessel couldn't contain this light, and it shattered. But this idea, and sparks went all over the place, and, and, and all of history, all of the exile is us elevating these, these fallen sparks. And that's one of the reasons given for why the Jews are spread out all over the world, why, why this exile has taken us to every far corner of the world, in order to elevate the, all the fallen sparks. But getting into another aspect of, of Tzimtzum, it's not just that God made in a, a space within himself for creation. And again, what's so compelling is that if you think about it, the Talmud says that every person that's born is a world unto themselves, is like a world. If you save one person, it's like you save the whole world. And so, so the idea of a womb being like a model for, for the world before it was created... And a womb producing a person who's called the world. You see, there are many, many parallels between the two. And also the shining of the ray of light is also analogous, if you think more deeply about it. So, so anyway. When the light contracts, it goes from something very ethereal to something very solid. But it's one seamless continuity. And the example that I always like to give is that if you imagine a, a block of ice, the molecule in the block of ice is H2O. But if the ice melts, it becomes water. Completely different form. But the molecule is still H2O. It's still the same thing. And if you boil that water, and it evaporates, and it becomes steam so that you can't even see it, that steam, the molecule, is H2O still. So it's one seamless continuity. Now let's do it in the reverse. And imagine the world being formed. God's light is like that water vapor. And then it becomes contracted to the water. And then it becomes contracted to physicality itself, a block of ice. But you see that the molecule never changes. It's H2O, H2O, H2O. In other words, this whole world, materiality, physicality, is condensed spirituality. It's one long continuity. That's the point. 
See, people who think there's the material and there's the physical, and they're two separate ideas, don't understand this fundamental concept. It's one straight continuum. So, you know, the joke is someone who tells you that he's not spiritual, that's all he is. You're made out of spirituality. That's all you are. Okay, now with that in mind, let's revisit the candlelight, okay? And get back to this idea of the Orahaga news. Now listen to this wild gematria, okay? Shemin is Hebrew for oil. Shemin. Shud, shin, mem, nun. Shemin, okay? Shemin means oil. And that's what we know that the miracle of Hanukkah was done with oil, with Shemin, okay? Now listen to this. Shemin is the gematria. See, when we talk about gematria, gematria means the numerical equivalent. What that means is that if two words have the same gematria, they share the same spiritual DNA. Now, sometimes you'll see that certain words have the same gematria, but mean opposite things, which is, which is, which is also interesting. But then you see sort of like the inverse of itself. In other words, there's not a contradiction. Like, oh, so there's no... They're all willy-nilly. Here you see that it's the same gematria and it's the opposite of itself. No. It's the inverse of itself, if, if you follow. In other words, it's, it, it, it makes sense that it's the same DNA, but it's the opposite of itself as it's manifested in this realm. Okay? But nonetheless, on the, so I'll give you a great example of that, is the word for Mashiach is also the same gematria as the word for Nachash, which means snake. And of course, snake is, is from the Garden of Eden and got us into the exile to begin with, right? So, so there you see the Redeemer and, and the one that sends us into exile, same gematria, it's a perfect example. So, of how something can be the opposite of itself. Okay, so, so but nonetheless, the way gematria is more frequently used is when we show how two concepts are very, very related because they have the same gematria or the same DNA. And so, you see, because God made the world out of the letters. So each word is like, so to speak, a recipe. You know, just like you throw in some chocolate chips and some flour and some eggs and some water and stir it up and you make a recipe. Each of the letters is, so to speak, a different um, energy wavelength, a different divine wavelength. And so God combines all these different things and he makes objects out of them. Okay, so, so it's really the recipe of the essence of the thing. Okay. So if it has the same gematria, that means it's sharing the same ingredients on some level. Fine. The word for Shemin, which is oil, which is this miraculous thing that we're celebrating Hanukkah of, which is that we're saying that when you light the Hanukkah menorah with this Shemin, that it's tapping into the original light of creation, right? Shemin, oil, is the gematria of Shemayim, heaven. Shemin and heaven. Shemayim and Shemin. The same thing. In other words, now let's revisit this model, this paradigm of Tzimtzum. Where you have Shemayim, so to speak, coming down and consolidating into this form of oil. Now, what's the whole idea of Shemayim, of heaven? Heaven is beyond the natural order. What are we doing with this Shemin? Miracles happen with this Shemin because it burned for eight days when it should have only burned for one day. 
So in other words, this whole idea of eight in Torah, eight represents Lamala Minateva, that which goes beyond nature. So you see this amazing correlation where Shemin, which means oil, where the miracle was done with, is the same gematria as Shemayim, heaven. Because heaven is manifesting itself down into this, this heavenly form, which is exposing the heavenliness of everything that's going on around us right now. And I want to go further into that point. But you see, even, you can even see it Simpson in the letters itself. Because Shemayim is spelled the same way as Shemin, except Shemayim ends with Yud and Mem, and Shemin ends with Nun. Yud is 10, Mem is 40, so 10 plus 40 is 50, and the Nun of Shemin is 50. Right? So in other words, the Yud and the Mem are, so to speak, there's like a Tzimtzum. They're sort of like fusing together the Yud and the Mem to become a Nun, and the Shemayim is becoming Shemin. So you see this, this, this condensing of the heavenly light down into this, this vehicle to deliver heavenliness down below. Now there's a famous question that the Beis Yosef asks. Uh, Rabbi Yosef Karo, the author of the Shulchan Aruch. And it's, it's the following. They found enough oil to last for one day. So, and then it burned for eight days. So, what is, um, what is the miraculous extent of the lighting of the menorah? Seven days. Because we had enough oil to light for one day, and it burned for eight days. So that's seven days worth of miracle. So let's celebrate Hanukkah for seven days. Why are we celebrating it for eight days? So I heard that there's a book that gives a hundred different answers to this question, by the way. The most popular answers are that we found the oil, right? Or that we won the war. Those are two of the most... I, I saw another one yesterday, which I, I thought was really cool, was that when they poured the oil into the jug, the jug remained full of oil. So the, the jug just, you know, didn't run out. But actually, if that's the case, then that was probably eight extra miracles. So according to that, probably we should celebrate Hanukkah for 16 days. But anyway... Um, Maybe, maybe because it was the same miracle, we say, okay, that's just one miracle. But, but the answer that I like best, so far anyway, I haven't seen all hundred, but the answer that I like the best is that, so you're saying that the first lighting, remember, we're saying that the, the light of the menorah is heavenly light. So you're saying that the first, when they lit it the first day, since they had enough oil for one day, that that wasn't miraculous. But the point is, that is miraculous. Because who says oil has to light? Who says anything has to happen? Who says anything has to happen? The very fact, you see, the great definition that I heard, I think the Ramban says it, maybe it's the Rambam, that nature is a miracle that we've grown accustomed to. In other words, everything around us on an ongoing basis is miraculous. It's completely miraculous. It's just that we've gotten used to it. So it doesn't, it doesn't strike us as miraculous. It strikes us as normal. You know, I know that when I was in my own spiritual journey, I came across something, actually in the writings of Milan Kundera, who's a famous Czech author. Um, he said this phrase in one of his books, 
that reality depends upon continuity. Same sort of idea. That, that we, we grow used to miracles. We grow used to miracles, so they don't seem miraculous to us. Sort of the flip side of phrasing that is that reality, or our notion of reality, is contingent on continuity. In other words, how we define reality is what happens all of the time. That's real. Sun goes up, sun goes down. Sun goes up, sun goes down. That happens every single day. That then becomes reality, because there's a continuity to it. You know, a lot of times in relationships, people say, listen, if you, if you have really changed, you have to show me with your behavior. Right? And you, you also hear in international diplomacy all the times, we need deeds, not words, you know, statesmen always say. So in other words, you need to have something expressed on an ongoing basis, and then it becomes real. Right? But the author of reality is not bound by our expectations of reality. <laughs> I'll say that again, it sounded fancy. The author of reality is not bound by our expectations of reality. Meaning to say, God can do whatever he wants to do. That just because the sun rose and the sun set and the rose and the sun set, who says the sun has to rise tomorrow? Right? Who says if God wants to communicate his will at Mount Sinai, he can't speak out his will? God, God, God can't write a book. God who created Shakespeare and Melville and Joyce and Hemingway and created time and space for Fitzgerald to exist in. He himself can't write a book if he wants to write a book. I mean, it seems to be the least of his accomplishments <laughs> if, he, if he so chooses, right? He can't communicate his will. Right? The sun stood at the time of Yoshua, the time of Joshua. The sun and the moon stood still. Okay, so all the previous days it didn't stand still. And the days afterwards it didn't stand still. So? And when you realize the infinity of God, and you recognize that, then it's sort of like, alright, I understand it, it hasn't happened since. But if there's credible reason to believe that there's no reason why it shouldn't have happened... The very fact that it's a singular event isn't really that challenging. To me, anyway. So, so this idea that the very first lighting of the menorah that we had, quote-unquote, enough oil for, that was, quote-unquote, normal, there's nothing normal about it. Why should oil light? Why should there even be such a thing as fire? Why should fire illuminate darkness? Any of these things. That's all miraculous. And what I love about that is that that's the first night. In other words, the foundation for understanding miracles. Because we say the next seven nights are on the miraculous level. But this tells us that the very first night is miraculous. And that the foundation for understanding all of miracles is to understand even nature is miraculous. You know, we were talking about it yesterday. Just another example of just the, the miraculousness of nature that I love is that we have a soul inside of our bodies. And yet we have like a mouth, we have a hole in our mouth, right? We've got nostrils, we've got holes in our ears. Why doesn't our soul fly out of our body? 
And we make a blessing over that. We say, the, 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 the blessing that we say after we go to the bathroom. We talk about the wondrousness of nature of the, the, the body. The, the Ramah explains that. What is this wondrousness? The fact that the soul doesn't fly out of the body. Just to make it more visual. Imagine I blow up a balloon. I blow air into a balloon and I don't tie it. I don't tie the end. And now I let go. And all of the air stays in the balloon. <laughs> How could that be? How could that be? You've seen a kid blow up a balloon. The air goes right out of the balloon. How could it be that the air, the spirit, right? We, we talk about our ruach. That means the wind. Right? How could it be that the wind doesn't come out of our body and just fly out? So now... Now let's understand this a little bit more. So we're saying that the light of the menorah, that the Shemin, which is the same gematria as Shemayim, that the Shemayim, this heavenly aspect, this heavenly light, returns at this time during the year, at the darkest time in the year, to light everything up, and to show us that God is still there. God is still there even in the exile, even in the darkness. So, let me give you another way of visualizing this. So, we were talking about how the Shemayim, the heaven, is coming down into the Shemin, into the oil. So, now let's work from uh, below back to above. So, imagine you're in a very vast, dark warehouse. And you light a match. It's completely black. You light a match. And... uh, you can see maybe a few feet around you. But that's it. Now imagine you hold up a torch and you can see the walls of the warehouse. You can see where it ends. Okay? So, so the light of nature, in other words, let's say, what's the greatest light in nature is, we would say, the sun for us. Right? So the sun illuminates the world but it tells you where the world ends also, seemingly. Right? It only takes you, you can see, so far up into the sky. and That's sort of like the walls of the warehouse, if you will. It's the end. And we say, okay, so that's, that's where we live. Right? But the light of the menorah, which is on the level of eight, which is Lamalam in Ateva, this light is showing us that Hashem does miracles in this world that this world is actually constructed out of miracles, and that there's a seamless continuity from this world to the next. From the physical to the spiritual. So, so, so you would say to me, so I've got a better idea for a menorah. If you want to tell me that the light of the menorah is telling me that this miraculousness, basically, stretches from this world to the next, and that it's all the light of heaven, even down here below, then why don't you make one of those, um, those floodlights that they have at movie openings that shoot up into the sky, <laughs> and that will show me that the light of this world goes all the way to the heavens. 
the light of the menorah is almost like in a like what you were saying before with the with the match in the warehouse. It's just lighting up the immediate area around me. So the menorah, it's like it's just lighting up the immediate area around me. So how is that showing me like that this world and the next world? It's like all one seamless continuity. And I think that's the whole point. I think that's the whole point. That it is just lighting up the area just around you. To show you that that area, your immediate surroundings, you yourself are a miracle. That you yourself are a miracle. You know, I heard Reb Shlomo say in the name of the Belzer Rebbe, he said, before the Holocaust, I always knew that the existence of the Jewish people was a miracle. But if you were to tell me that the existence of every single Jew, every particular Jew, was a miracle, I wasn't so sure. He says, after the Holocaust, it's clear to me that the existence of every single Jew is a separate miracle. And so the light of the menorah, and according to Halacha, really, the light of the menorah, the, the, the menorah should be lit in, in, in a person's home. Each person lights it in their home. That's the primary place where it's observed. They have public lightings now, but that's really kind of like extra. That's not the essence of the mitzvah. The essence of the mitzvah is really doing it in your home. And it's showing you just all these things that we, we've decided are normal. You know what? There's still a roof above my head. The walls in my house didn't fall down yet. I'm standing on my floor and I haven't dropped through the floorboards. All these things that we absolutely take for granted. It's mamish a miracle. It's mamish a miracle. And you know, just uh, kind of a strange halacha. It's funny, I've heard it several times over the years and it never actually sunk in because it's just so far out. But I think I finally got it. So I just want to say it. Rabbi Brot was saying it over yesterday and I just, just clicked it. So... So it's like this. Normally speaking, you can't make a blessing over someone else's mitzvah. So in other words, let's say I'm putting on tefillin. Um, you couldn't say the blessing on putting on tefillin if I'm putting it on and you're not putting it on. Right? So that, that's normal. Right? The person who's doing the mitzvah says the blessing over the mitzvah. That's normal. But believe it or not, you know, there, there, there are two blessings that we say over the lighting of the menorah. The first one is Lahadlik Ner Kanaka, the lighting of the menorah. And then we say a second blessing, which is that the miracles that Hashem did for us are still going on right now. And that's very much what we've been talking about this whole, this whole talk. That this area, that this world is a world of miracles also. We've just grown accustomed to them on, on some level. But anyway, here's the halacha. Let's say I'm riding on a train. And I didn't get a chance to um, light candles. Right? And as I'm going by in this train, I see in the window of a house a, min- a lit menorah. Now, I can't say the first blessing... Lahadlik Ner Hanukkah, because that's the blessing that you say when you're lighting the candles. I can't say that blessing, 
because they didn't like the candles. But I can say the second blessing. And that's really that God is doing miracles until this day. And that's really far out because as far as I know, that's the only example where you can say a blessing over a mitzvah that someone else did because you didn't light that candle and yet you're saying the blessing that God is still doing miracles till this day. So that means that your light is spreading to my light. In other words, it's showing us how absolutely interconnected we are. The light of Hanukkah is going beyond boundaries. Remember, seven is like the, the realm of nature, the realm of boundaries. Eight, which is the number of Hanukkah, is going beyond boundaries. And it's showing absolutely how connected all of us are. That we can even say a blessing on each other's mitzvahs. Rabbi Brett yesterday brought up another point, and I'll just connect that and we can end with this. Uh, a story, it's called the, the Blind Chazan. Beautiful story that happened to Reb Shlomo. You can find a recording of it. It's much better to hear Reb Shlomo say it, but this is more just to hear the point. Beautiful, beautiful point. Reb Shlomo was, I think it was in Antwerp, or maybe it was is Belgium, in, is Antwerp in Belgium? Somehow I think it was in it was there, but Anyway, and Reb Shlomo was in this shul, this was many years ago, and uh, the chazan is, 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 is davening, and he doesn't know this chazan, and he's skipping words, and he's getting things wrong, and he, it's just, and Reb Shlomo is getting really, he's just stewing. He's like, why is this man davening? He doesn't know the davening, and then Reb Shlomo thinks, you know what, he must be a big donor to the shul, and he gave a lot of money so that he can daven, so they're letting him daven, and this whole, everything is just so off, you know, that this is taking place right now. And, uh, and they open up the ark, and, and the chazan takes out the Torah, and, and Reb Shlomo sees that the chazan is being led by someone. And it's very strange, he's never seen anything like that before. And so Reb Shlomo says, what's, what's going on? And he says, oh, he's blind. You, you, don't know that's, you don't know who that is? He used to be one of the greatest opera singers in all of Europe, and the Nazis blinded him. And, uh, and uh, when Reb Shlomo heard that, he just, his, you know, he went up to him and he kissed the Torah and then he kissed the Chazan. And the chazan reacted and he said to the person next to him, he said, who, who, who's that? And he said, that's, that's Shlomo Karlobach. And he said, ah, oh, Shlomo. He says, your songs are keeping me alive. And uh, later on, he explained to Rav Shlomo that he didn't want to daven, that they make him daven. I don't know. So, so one of the points that Rabbi Brod was making was, you know, 
he was very appreciative to Reb Shlomo for having told this story to expose the fact that, he, first of all, just on a very human level, that even someone who's so great isn't, isn't incapable of having some judgmental thoughts. That all of us go up and down. And even someone who, I don't know, who loved people more than Reb Shlomo, but that even he, you know, was just upset about this situation. So that should give us a little strength during our own ups and downs, basically. But that but that also when he realized what was going on, when he was able to access the light of the other person, that he also received back from him to find out how much of a contribution he was making to that person. So it went back and forth that when you could really try to find the light in someone else, then they'll find the light back in you. And, uh, and that's a process. That sometimes we're blessed and it happens on the spot and sometimes it, it really takes a while. I remember my, my wife used to give me advice with certain people at work who were antagonistic. She'd say, kill them with kindness. <laughs> In other words, just be nice back, just be nice back, just be nice back. And many times, the majority of times, people at a certain point would just be nice back. And um, I think that for all of us, I know I'm speaking for myself, when you know that Hashem has the power to change anything at a moment's notice, and you live with that, and you know that to be reality, living with the process of how long sometimes something takes is sometimes one of the hardest, 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 hardest things in the world. And yet that's, that is this life. That is the world that we're living in. And... Um, and I think that this, spiritually speaking, in our generation, has become more and more and more of a challenge as technology advances and as we see instantaneous results. And that becomes our reality. And that becomes our teva. We've been conditioned by, by everything around us. I don't know if you guys have seen the new um, iPod Nano. Have you seen the new Nano? The touchscreen little thing, it's like a little, it's about the size of a quarter, but it's touchscreen with graphics and everything like this. It, it's really, I mean, you know, you feel like, you feel like you've like journeyed into the future or something like that. I mean, as cool as the iPad is, the new iPod Nano, and I haven't, I don't own it, so I haven't, I, I don't know its functionality. But just, if you go to a store and just like, just take a few minutes with it. It's just, it's incredible. It's incredible. And uh, everything around us, it's either servicing our desires instantly, or it's showing us a product which promises to do it. Whether the product can do it or not, by the way. So, so that has become our Teva. And yet, the reality is, is that that's, God has his own time. And there is not a fundamental contradiction between God doing it in his time 
and us still being embraced and loved by God. Um, you know, one of the most touching lines in the Psalms, for me, just in terms of grounding me in reality, I'm, I'm going to quote you from the English translation, in the Art Scroll Sitter, at the end of the Song of the Day, the, the Psalm for Monday, it said, God will guide, guide us like children. That's how it concludes. God will guide us like children. And to me, what that means is, is that just like you say to a child, like a young child, you say, don't, if you eat too many of those chocolates, you're going to get a stomachache. Right? And the child thinks, that's absurd. First of all, it's impossible. This chocolate is so good. How could this thing, which is so good, give me a stomachache? It's impossible. It's impossible. And so you say, and of course, if, on those rare occasions where the child does get his you know, hands on fistfuls of chocolate, they get ter- 100% of the time, they get terrible stomachaches. So if you say to the child after a couple of chocolates, and you take away the chocolate, the child is like, you're killing me. What are you doing? You're killing me. And yet, it's for the child's own good, but the child doesn't know it. And it's very hard on a logical basis, because chocolate tastes so good, for the child to understand that the parent is doing the right thing, and is doing it as an act of love. And so God guides us like children. There are things where it makes, we'll give you a thousand, thousand different reasons why this job is right for me, why that person is right for me, why this situation is right for me. How could it be that something else is happening? That's God guiding us like children. You know, um, so what's the answer? So what's the answer? We'll just really finish up right now. The answer is you just keep going. <laughs> so you just keep going. And uh, just invest in God. Invest in God. Invest in God. Okay.